Hi, everybody. It is, uh, hang on a second here. Hello, everyone. It is the 7th of February, 2020, and this is, I believe, episode 18 of the Luke Thomas live chat. Getting started on time today because I have a ton of stuff to do after the chat is over. Uh, you know how this goes. I put up a thread on Thursdays. You guys fill it up with questions. You rank the ones you like the best, and then I answer those. If you want to donate, you are certainly under zero obligation to do that. In fact, I strongly encourage you actually not to. Uh, if you really want to, you can, but tomorrow will be the day to get those in uh, when we come back for my UFC 247 post-fight show. But nevertheless, here we are, episode 18. So yeah, whatever's on your mind, we're going to get to. And without further ado, let's get it going. Okay, uh, first things first. Um, how, how did I not replace this fucking thing? All right. Um, give the video a thumbs up. Subscribe to the channel. Hit that notification bell. If you know somebody who you think might want to hear this podcast, tell them about it. Send them a note, whatever. And, of course, a bit of a reminder, my radio show, The Luke Thomas Show, which airs on Sirius XM Fight Nation, channel 156. That's Monday to Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. You can now get the best of that episode every single day. So you can get five days of around 30 to 30 minutes to an hour every single day for free worldwide. Uh, if you look in the description box below, you'll see a link to subscribe on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Stitcher. I don't think it's on Spotify, but it's on virtually every other platform. I just want to remind folks that that is out there and that is available to you. Yeah, And for everyone who's already done all that, uh, why don't you just leave me a nice review? Get, hit that five star. Say, this is the best thing since sliced effing bread. Yeah? Okay. Very good. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I just came from the gym. I, I am looking like absolute garbage these days, man. I look like trash. But um, I got decent sleep last night, and I got really good sleep the night before that. So I can't complain too much. But in any event, if I look like trash and I sound like ass... You know the reason why. And uh, got my protein shake. Mm. The camera is a little crooked. Hang on. There we are. Okay. With that in mind, let's get to your questions without any further ado, shall we? All right. First question. Uh, someone says, a torn Achilles seems to be the most devastating injury for an NFL or NBA athlete. It often relegates all-stars to journeymen and spells the beginning of the end for a career. What would you say is the worst slash hardest injury to come back from as far as MMA is concerned? Ooh, good question. Um, shoulders are bad. That wouldn't be my number one answer, but that's a bad one. That's a bad one. When you think about how you have to use your shoulder for power, pushing, um, pulling, um, pressing, you know what, probably neck, probably neck injuries. They have slowed careers. They have ended careers. You know, look, look at uh, someone like Tito Ortiz had multiple neck surgeries, Pat Militich. I remember when he fought Henzo Gracie at in IFL, it was supposed to be like coming out of retirement fight and Henzo jumped guillotine arm, arm in guillotine. And, you know, you could see him complaining about his neck and Neck issues had made him retire, I think, in the first place. Um, look at Tatiana Suarez. You know who who knows what's going to happen with her neck uh, as a result of this. Even old Ben Folks, the writer over at the Athletic, talking about his pile of trash neck. 
the neck is like you know it's just so critically important. You need it. You need your head as like a, another appendage. So when you're pressing someone into the fence, or when you're bridging off of your head, or you know, um, to resist the the force of a punch, like your neck is incredibly important. And if that is compromised or just can't get right or something, that'll really mess up your career. Plus, I would say, you know, like that's one of those ones where you're getting like, if, if you tear your Achilles, but you come back with like, you know, great rehabilitative services, maybe you can't play at the same level. And that is obviously incredibly damaging, but I wouldn't put that on the same level as like how you might fear for your quality of life when you're older if your neck doesn't work right. Right, that's a really bad one. Obviously, you know, brain trauma is going to be another one in combat sports as well. You know, if you're forgetting everything and slurring your speech and blah, blah, blah. Anytime your cognitive function might be impaired, that would be one. But to me, if I'm thinking about not like not internal organ damage uh, per se, but maybe, you know, um, connective and soft tissue damage uh, or worse, vertebrae damage, your neck. And the back too, obviously, but the neck is the one you see a lot of. The neck gets strained a lot in jujitsu, man. It gets strained, you know, um, and not just in wrestling too. And then striking, it can get you know reaggravated. So probably the neck, I would say. And there's different kinds, like degenerative disc conditions and and, and whatnot. But let's let's say the neck. All right, Professor Salt and Pepper. This person writes. Uh, I vehemently disagree with Joe Rogan when he says something to the effect of. The burden is on the fighter that got taken down to get back up, and referees shouldn't intervene in that regard. The underlying reason why I disagree is because if you are on your back and the opponent is in top position and considered to be a grounded fighter, you are prohibited from throwing up kicks. That's correct. That's how uh, Yushin Okami technically beat uh, Anderson Silva, if memory serves. The Back in Rumble on the Rock. This shifts the advantage tremendously in favor of the top-slash-grounded opponent. I believe upkicks should be legal even if the top opponent is grounded because it will provide the bottom fighter with an adequate or fair fighting chance to scramble back to their feet and do damage. Disallowing upkicks in those circumstances gives the top fighter a lot of leverage since gravity is on their side. Thoughts? Yeah, I would agree with that, although that wouldn't be the, my primary reason to fix to, to, to say that, that I disagree with Rogan in that particular consideration. So I do believe upkicks in that particular circumstance should be legal. Right, and one of the reasons why people were scared about um, strikes to you know, kicks or stomps or knees to the head of a grounded opponent is because the neck often, depending on how you think about it, if they're, especially if the bottom person, their neck might not have a chance to recoil, and you need that recoil to then absorb the the blow. Uh, but in that particular circumstance, if they're over the top of you, they would. Um, now, perhaps there are arguments for disallowing upkicks in that circumstance that I'm not aware of. I'd be happy to entertain them, but uh, if we're going to pres- – because here's the, here's, the, here's the big lie about it. They call that a 50-50 position, right, if you're on top of somebody and they're in, you're in their full guard. They call that 50-50, but it's not 50-50. It's very hard to submit somebody off of your back from guard no matter what. It obviously can be done. There's arm bars, triangles, omoplatas, the whole nine yards. But against elite opposition, it's very difficult to do. Um, the force of gravity uh, in terms of your strikes affects and aids your opponent much more than it does yours. Um, so the argument is like, well, they have more strikes and submission. They have more strikes benefited if they're on top. They have more submissions benefited if they're on bottom. But those are not, you know, the access to the two of them is not equivalent. It's much harder to land a submission from the bottom than it is a punch or a kick. Well, not a kick, excuse me, but an elbow, let's say, 
from the top. It's much more difficult. Um, and so they're not equivalent positions, not under any circumstance. They're not like massively dissimilar, but they're not equivalent, even if the rules consider them to be. So I wouldn't be opposed to allowing upkicks, but really the, the main reason why that argument fails, and it's quite an obvious one, is that uh, essentially that is a license to stall, right? If the idea is that uh, you and I are fighting and I take you down and I can be on top and the person underneath now has the strict and sole obligation to free themselves from there, that is a license for the top person to simply stall out, right? Now, that's not always how stalling works. Um, when Anderson Silva was putting the lockdown on Daniel Cormier at UFC 200 and not really underhooking, just kind of holding on, to me that was stalling on the bottom. If you're gonna, there is, and there are ways to stall in either position, but if you're going to allow the person on bottom, sorry, if the person on bottom is going to try to stall, then the solution is to actually keep them there because in that particular case he was actually in a losing position. He was just holding on because he didn't want to do the work to get to his feet. He was filling in on 48 hours notice for crying out loud. So, but it was it was stalling just the same. But uh, if you will, if the sole responsibility is the person being pressed against the fence or pressed into the floor to extricate themselves from this situation, it's a flat out license to stall, and that's exactly what it was for years and years and years uh, in the early stages of uh, NHB to MMA until rules began to be implemented about what was considered effective, and what referee's responsibility is. And the reality is, yes, a bad referee will intervene at the wrong times, and that can have a really consequential effect on the fight. I understand and appreciate that argument. To me, that's not a reason to, I mean, essentially consecrate stalling. Or you can also get a situation where, let's say, two people are in 50-50, like in the same way, um, you can get a stalemate where the people just don't know how to move from that position. It's a roughly equivalent move. This is a rare occurrence in that particular regard, but it's a stalemate just the same. People got after Mark Goddard for the way in which he was breaking up the clinch between Kamara Usman and Tyron Woodley, but I don't really understand that argument even a little bit. That was, I wouldn't call it stalling, but it was certainly a stalemate. Stalemates happen in wrestling. You know what they do when a stalemate happens in wrestling? They blow the, blow the whistle and restart them. They stop it. You know what a stalemate happens in boxing, which is just two guys clinching and not doing anything? They separate them. Referee intervention is a key component of not merely forcing action and entertainment into a fight. It actually keeps the fight going. So consider the case with Kamara Usman and Tyron Woodley. They were in the clinch together, 50-50. Tyron's being pressed. He's not taking any steps to get out of there. And, and you had he was punching the ribs for a while, Kamara Usman, from the overhook side. But eventually that kind of wore out and stopped too. And it wasn't until that had gone on for about 45 seconds, um, the stopping once the, the body punches had ceased, that Mark Goddard had separated them. So why is that important to understand? Um, it, it, I don't think this is a function of someone who has trained but anybody who is trained will understand if you and I are in a 50-50, there are knowable steps. There's a finite universe of knowable steps that each of us can take to advance or separate. Right? I can underhook. You can underhook. I can frame and push off. You can frame and push off. I can continue punching over the top of your overhook if it's hard enough. Um, and that's a way. Um, I can frame and, and uh, level change. I can go for a body lock. I can. Th these are all knowable steps. If you and I are sitting there for two minutes, you're not underhooking, I'm not underhooking. You're not framing, I'm not framing. 
You're not really punching. I'm not really punching. You're not level changing. I'm not level changing. You have exhausted the options of what is knowable to advance this position. It is incumbent upon the referee at that point to then facilitate the action. The argument often is is that you're intervening in a fight and you're stopping the fight from what it would be. No, you're actually putting the fight back on the tracks. It is very possible for one or even both competitors to pull the fight off of the tracks. A good referee will then put them back on. So um, not an argument I buy. Not an argument I buy at all. I understand the point, which is, hey, if I get a takedown and uh, I'm working on top, and the person underneath is not doing a whole lot, the referee should not come and intervene. That's fine, and I, and I grant that that happens time to time. I don't think that's as much of a concern as alarmists make it out to be, and I don't think that's a good operating procedure. It actually derails fights. It makes it less of a fight. It makes it less of an entertainment product, um, and it consecrates stalling and stalemating. It's just I couldn't imagine what a good argument for that might be. So what is your comment, the next question says, on Cowboy denying the broken nose and orbital? Did the UFC lie just to fool the casual MMA fans? So I don't really understand that one. Uh, Number one, that's not the UFC making that call. So anytime you see after a big fight, you'll see one after UFC 247. Pay attention on Sunday or Monday, whenever they come out. I think it's closer to Monday they come out, maybe even Tuesday. Uh, Pay attention. Because it'll say, you know, uh, 247 uh, medical suspensions, dot, 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 as ordained and, maintain- and, and required by the Nevada State Athletic Commission. UFC has nothing to do with it. They, they might release what the NSAC is saying, but that is a decree and a command and a requirement from the relevant state athletic commission. It'll be Nevada in this case on Saturday. So no, it's got nothing to do with the UFC. Now, where it gets a little dicey, and to be honest, I don't know the answer to this. All these years spent in the uh, business, and this is something that is not exactly clear to me. Um, so he didn't go to the post-fight presser, right? I think he was transported to the hospital. What I don't quite understand is if you read the medical suspension report, what it says is he had a mild orbital fracture, and then a vascular, no, excuse me, then he had a nasal fracture. Well, what does that mean exactly? And who determined that? Uh, and what methods did they use to determine it? Because on that same medical suspension report, there was another fighter who had to get, and if they wanted to get cleared, they had to provide uh, whatever injury they had needed an x-ray and an MRI. So it's like, well, wait a second. He was taken to the back, and he was medically supervised to the point where they decided to take him to the hospital. Okay, so there was supervision involved. And the, the doctors in there, probably UFC as well as the state commission, looked at it and made, made a judgment call about what to do. Fair enough. When they were backstage, who looked at him and what did they determine? What methods did they use to determine it? When he went to the hospital, what tests did they run? What uh, evidence did they conclude? And... More especially, what amount of that information was then shared with the athletic commission for them to make that call, right? So whoever you want to blame here, the UFC is not it. Nothing to do with this. The questions that I need answers to are the ones I just asked. Um, Maybe he got an x-ray at the hospital and that's what they determined it on. Maybe he had a mild orbital fracture and Cowboy got told it's more, maybe it's like a, literally in the report it says mild. 
mild orbital fracture. So maybe it was one of the situations where it's like a hairline fracture, and they're just saying, well, you know, if it, um, you know, if it, uh, let it heal on its own. You know, there's no, we don't, you don't, there's no cast. You don't have to wear a face thing. Just it'll heal on its own. Just take some time off. Don't get punched in the face in sparring or something. Maybe that was the case, and he doesn't consider that. Maybe the na- maybe they thought it was a broken nose, but uh, later on, because it was like cracking and creaking, and they did some kind of test. But then he went to the hospital, and that wasn't the case. It, it's hard to know exactly what happened here. And as to those questions I asked about who looked at him, with what methods, with what tools, with what evidence, at both the backstage at T-Mobile and in the relevant hospital, and then how much of the information was shared with the athletic commission before they determined the medical suspension, I don't know the answer to. I don't know. It seems actually almost to a point where it's like private medical information. But um, if the question is, did the UFC lie just to fool the casual MMA fans, that is a utterly baseless conspiracy theory that deserves little attention. When I say little, I mean none. However, asking some other questions about the question that I have, the one question is, what is the distance between what injuries people actually suffer and what medical suspensions say? And if there is daylight between them, why? I'm actually going to look into this because this was something I found actually pretty interesting. I don't blame the UFC, but there is a weirdness about that that I don't quite understand. Uh, what's up, Luke? This person writes, a few weeks ago you spoke about Joe Rogan being an intellectual and uh, masculine influence to many young men. Yes, I believe that to be true. Uh, after thinking about it, I came to the realization that you've kind of been and still are one for me. Uh-oh. Don't get too far down that rabbit hole. I feel like I've learned a lot from you, uh, honestly, and uh, and arguing your point, and this might surprise you. Um, I've learned a lot without you being a, without being a dick. I'm not sure what that means. So all in all, thank you for the positive stuff you've brought to my life. You're welcome. And uh, keep up the good work. P.S. My favorite rant of yours in old live chats when you explained how MMA is a little gay, and that's okay. <laughs> I remember that, actually. Yeah, well, um, well, first of all, thank you. Secondly, I'm not sure whatever to make of that. Thirdly, let me say, let me caution you, not against it. Take influence wherever you can. Um, I think one thing Joe does is try to lead by example, where he's got this you know, really diverse set of guests and and interests, and I think he tries to show people that you should have the same. I think often what ends up happening, though, is that people just kind of follow his path of diversity, of diverse interest, which is not the worst thing in the world, but I guess what I would caution you is, if you take anything from these chats in these podcasts, I'm grateful for it. On the other hand, um, don't just rely on me. Be sure to get a wide range of influences for your life. If I can point you in certain directions, please do that. Um, I'm happy that to whatever positive and relevant and helpful influence I could be, that's great. But uh, don't rely on me. Seek out as many divergent viewpoints as you possibly can. Read around. Do whatever you can on any particular subject matter. Uh, Even and then especially when you don't agree. To wit. um, I often... Um, like if I if you want a recommendation on a podcast to listen to, and I know a lot of you will probably roll your eyes at this, but I don't think that that's a really the correct response. I don't listen to every episode, and there are some episodes I frankly just get nothing out of. Um, but one podcast that I've gotten also a lot out of has been Ezra Klein's po- a podcast, 
And I know what some of you might say. I know there's a sort of a real MAGA strain and a, 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 a right-wing populism that runs through MMA. Fine. I could not imagine a situation where I only read and absorbed information that I uh, agreed with or that affirmed my worldview. One of the things I've really gotten out of the Ezra Klein podcast, um, again, sometimes nothing, but in many cases... What I've gotten out of it is a real higher, it's a much higher order of intellectual leadership and explanation for a viewpoint and a worldview that you're going to get on just about any other podcast I've listened to uh, on a wide range of topics. Um, And you're going to, like, one of my biggest gripes with the Jordan Peterson followers is that I understand the contribution that he made, which is that he spoke out in no uncertain terms um, on a lot of different issues, but he was sort of a intellectual voice against sort of woke campus leftism that was creeping both into campus and then beyond, and he provided uh, an intellectual uh, challenge to that. I don't necessarily think that that is unhelpful in any regard. However, you should always be suspicious of academics whose most famous work comes not from their work. I know he has a book, Maps of Meaning, or some titles roughly equivalent. Um, that's not why he got famous. And there's actually no paper he's written that, that ever made him famous. Which isn't to say he's not a real academic. He is a very much a real academic in every way. What I'm trying to point out to you is, to me, in my experience, the best kind of academics, the ones I can really sink my teeth into are the ones whose lives pertain to their work, and that work is what ultimately gets them attention. Um, that doesn't have to be a universal rule and is not a universal rule. That is not a, if it's not this case, you should ignore it. That is not what I'm suggesting. I think in general, though, it should be. Like the reason Robert Nozick got famous, a lot of reasons, but he is sort of primarily known for, I think, today, for other reasons, but most commonly, Anarchy State and Utopia. Right, um, Tim Wu was known for the master switch, but also before that, you know, who controls the internet? He was the guy that came up with the term net neutrality. That's the guy. He was a Supreme Court clerk, right? But it was, it's pieces of work you can trace to them that set them apart. That was what got them to a level. Um, I read a book by Jennifer Carlson on the growth of gun ownership in the country and why it's happening. And it was one of the most insightful things I'd ever read. It doesn't weigh in on in any capacity whatsoever on the value or the merit of gun ownership or the lack thereof. It it doesn't take a side at all. It merely tries to ascertain how is gun ownership changing and why. And one of the things that they find is that, one, it's growing among women, it's growing among among African-American populations, uh, and one of the key drivers of that is a sense of um, the biggest areas of gun ownership relative to those two populations is often happening in places of... Um, major economic displacement, and that this sense of pr- of familial providing and uh, security, and also one thing that she really points out was that something I did not uh, I failed to appreciate was how much the NRA, and this is a credit to them, provides a sense of uh, community through not merely shared interests, but also they're really good about grassroots, state to state, city to city, county to county certification and training, 
right? They're very good about getting you up to speed on whatever you really need and then providing a community around that. And then they're really good about locating those areas of economic displacement to find that. It was a, it was a brilliant book. I think it's called Citizen Warrior. I have to look it up. The point being is that I, I would never have heard of this woman but for that book. So my recommendation to you is, uh, and this, the, the research she had done to make that book possible, is uh, if you take anything from me, great. Read around and find somebody who produced work, and that's what got them attention. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Uh, and to, that, to, to wit on that, the last thing I'd say is, you know, um, I've read every, not everything obviously, but I've read a lot of uh, anti-doping scholarship that tried to justify that. And one position that I have found very convincing is the idea that um, if you just let everyone use everything, it would lead to sort of a chemical arms race. Um, and some of the people who are in favor of uh, laxer anti-doping really don't agree with that. I tend to, I tend to think that's actually correct. Um, I tend to believe that the evidence for that is pretty strong. And it wouldn't, that would not have really found its way to my doorstep if I did not find people who I disagreed with and tried to really understand their perspective um, and had done the research. So those two things I would always caution you to, to be on the lookout for. What's the name of that book, by the way, before I forget this? Um, Citizen Protector. Citizen Protectors is the name of the book. Brilliant. Brilliant book. A little academic, but good. Um, early thoughts on Adesanya Romero. I think we've done this one before, haven't we? Uh, we've brought, Well, we at least went over the title shot he got, which I don't need to relitigate here. Um, it's going to be interesting. You know, Romero fights in spurts, which we all kind of know. He was a little bit back and forth with Costa, but tends to fight in spurts. I tend to think Adesanya is very cautious about that. You know, um, so it may it may be a fight that goes five rounds, and maybe even a little bit boring. But I tend to think Adesanya wins that, no no problem. Just it just never happens until I'm on the air. That one of their brother hits me up. It's so annoying. For Christ's sake. Um. Brian Campbell claims to be. He just texted me too. Brian Campbell claims to be straight, but how many dongs has he seen up close? He loves talking about dongs, bro. He loves it. I've never seen a man love a dong more who's married with two kids. Um, he's a funny cat, dude. He's a super funny cat. How many dongs has he seen up close? He's definitely, he's perfectly straight, which if he wasn't, I wouldn't carry it anyway. But he's definitely that straight dude in the locker room who's, you know, peeping dongs. Just, just on the lookout, different sizes, shapes, you know, <laughs> colors. He's out there. He's out there. You know that dude. He could. He could. If there, if there was like a, if there was a way to like identify someone. Like, oh, this guy robbed a bank. What did he look like? He's like, well, sir, I saw him in the sauna at the gym the week before. I can't tell you about his face, but I can give you a every detail of that dong. That's Brian Campbell. Thoughts on Colby's interview with Ariel? Didn't see it. Oh, I saw, I think, one clip that had made its way through social media. 
He states he'd be willing to wait for his title shot and won't fight in the meantime, only for a, quote, big money fight, which is unlikely, this person writes. Considering him and Dana have had issues in the past, do you think it's unlikely that his next match will be for the title? Or do you think, although Colby isn't uh, currently a pay-per-view draw, they'll give it to him as he's generated so much interest outside of the MMA community? I believe if Masvidal were to win it, would be almost certain that his next fight would be with Colby. Yeah, he's sort of playing his hand there. I don't think that's, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world, that Colby is sort of waiting to see if they'll make a fight, even though he lost. Um, because, I mean, think about it, right? The, you're going to get Aldo coming off of a title shot. Sorry, getting a title shot off of a loss, it seems. Uh, Romero. Now, the, we've, we've talked about the differences between those two scenarios, but that is one. Um, so he might be thinking to himself, well, okay, I lost, but he's sort of made this campaign about going after Mark Goddard, which you begin to think about, too. It's like, it's kind of amazing that fighters haven't gone after referees in a more direct way before. Uh, I guess Colby's the first person to sort of shatter that norm. But um, but the, the argument for him would be, okay, I lost, but they're giving title shots to these other people. And you're right, if Jorge wins, you know, what's the biggest fight you could make at that point? You could argue it's Colby versus Masvidal. I tend to think, though, that they're going to make him get in line for one more. I tend to think he's going to, you know, a lot, you see a lot, I've seen it a million times, man. Fighters get to a point where they're, like, beginning to really, you know, build themselves up into something, both as a divisional presence and relative to what they, you can argue about how big Colby is as a media figure. But, you know, essentially what he has become is a bit of a Trump mascot. And that has worked for him. That's worked, that's really worked for him in a major way. Because all of the people on that side of the political aisle who identify with him and like him, which isn't to say that everyone who's on that side does that. I'm just saying it tends to curry favor with that audience fairly well-ish. And it, and you saw in the loss to Kamar Usman, it also agitated uh, all of the uh, people who don't like that worldview and wanted to use that as a way to, to slam it, you know. So it ends up being a very polarizing, which can be, you know, being polarizing is great in this business in terms of how lucrative it can be. So, so there's a possibility there. On the other hand, you're right. He has butted heads with uh, Dana over and over. Um, but, you know, if you just look around, man, you look around. <laughs> if he beats Masvidal, there's nobody left in that top five he hasn't already beaten. They might do the winner of Woodley and... Um, Edwards, but in either case, that's going to be a rematch, which again, they might do before give, you know, giving into Colby's demands. Uh, so what I would say is if I'm him, I don't think that's the worst call in the world right now, but if that doesn't pay fairly immediate dividends, and by the way, I mean, he's going to have to wait until after international fight week. So what is it? February? He's gonna have to wait till after July, August, September, October or so. It's a long time to sit out during your prime, dude. It's a really long time. So, you know, what are you going to do? Um, I don't know that's the worst thing in the world, but it would not be what I would recommend. This person writes, hypothetically, in a street fight, how many Ben Shapiros could you physically handle before they physically take you over and defeat you? You ever seen the movie Matrix, uh, what was the middle one, Reloaded? Where uh, Neo pulls the sign out of the ground and then fights like a hundred... Agent Smith's at once, it'd be like that, bro. I would just style on that nerd. You know, there's many different ways to provide leadership and to be a man in this world. And I wouldn't want it to deny that being a, uh, 
you know, a diminutive creature who mostly shouts as a way to be a man. I wouldn't want to deny that that's a possibility. But if you're asking, like, how many of them it would take, it would take a, it would take a lot. I would fuck, I would fuck those Ben Shapiro's up. And I say that with utmost confidence. Uh, would you want to interview Dana White if nothing was off the table? And what kind of hard-hitting questions would you ask? Oh, sure. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no point in interviewing him if he's just going to get a chance to lie. Or not lie, but just, you know, obfuscate and do his promoter bit. Yeah, I think I would ask you, I would pull out the documents from the uh, lawsuit. And I would say, you know, um, I would ask him to make the case that these are independent contractors and not employees. Like, what is your best argument for that? And I would obviously, he's going to have to trip up because there's really no good argument for that. I would show him these documents and say, this is what we know about fighter pay. It appears like one of the things that uh, John Nash and I were talking about, he's done the best reporting on this. If you actually look at the numbers for Zufa, especially now when they have all this contracted revenue, I mean, before they had contracted revenue, but then a lot of it was really, it was very volatile because it was a function of what pay-per-view, which was their biggest driver, would draw. So if they had big pay-per-views, they'd get big cash. If they didn't, it would obviously be a lot less. Now, they did pretty well no matter what, but there was a lot of volatility introduced to the overall revenue model. They have taken a lot of that out by giving them over to ESPN and obviously through a lot of overseas contracted revenue. But uh, what you've seen, even as a through line with all of that, is that um, it's all real formulaic. It's all real formulaic. Fighter compensation, base, I mean, it varies a little bit, but basically year over year, they're calling it about 20%, but that 20%, as we now know, is also including in fighter compensation, includes the costs of uh, USADA. So if you take that out, how much are you actually paying the fighters? You know, it hovers between 15 and 17 or 18%. That's really what it's about every single year. Now, they had made a number of claims over the years and, and on camera, including Lorenzo Fertitta to ESPN when Outside the Lines had looked into this, that they were much higher than that. Well, how, how would you reconcile these two when one, we now know, matter of factly, it's just not true. Right? And we have this evidence for it. And this is evidence they had to turn into a court case where they're being sued for a number of different things, including but not limited to not paying enough. Right, So they're going to show as much as they can to make it look, look like they're paying as much as possible, which is why I think, I don't know this, but my hunch is that that's why fighter compensation, not fighter costs, compensation are included, um, are including USADA, right? So it bumps the number up to what uh, the overall share is. Um, so things like that, things like that, you know, um, or, or, or why Vitor Belfort was allowed to compete against John Jones when um, the, was, there's documentation that the UFC knew that his testosterone levels were elevated, right? And again, you show them the documents, you hand the documents to them. Um, and at that point, they obfuscate, then they just obfuscate. But you at least present the evidence and you ask them a clear and direct line of questioning about it. This is why these kinds of questions are impossible. Because there's never going to be a scenario, I don't think, where they sit down and entertain this kind of questioning. So it ends up just being on podcasts like this and spilling onto social media and, you know, into the ether, essentially. Uh, during Ariel Hawani's show, Anthony Smith made an interesting statement. He was talking about how John Jones is very calculating in the week leading up to the fights in messing with an opponent's schedules and that everything he says to the public and on social media is also very calculated and has a purpose against his opponents to the point where when they get into the octagon, they're already drained. 
Specifically, Anthony Smith also mentioned Reyes doesn't know what he's getting himself into yet. Do you believe these statements to be true? I'm leaning with Anthony Smith, I think. Well, again, I've not seen this. You should operate under the assumption I've not seen Ariel's show. I don't say that pejoratively, but you got to remember what my Monday is like. I'm up at 4.30. I have to do Dissected by myself. Then I have to do Morning Combat. Then I have to do my radio show. Then I have to go home, which, by the way, I have to prepare for the next day show. Um, to the extent that there's anything relevant or newsworthy, my producers will pluck it out. We might even talk about it or even play little snippets on my show. I'm not against it. I just I do not have the time or bandwidth to really sink my teeth into the show unless it's particularly newsworthy. Um, as it relates to Anthony Smith, I got him on my show today to do a bit of a breakdown, like a, like an X's and O's between John and and, um, and Dominic. So that should be fun. Uh, I believe Anthony. By the way, he told me that story. I did hear that about that when he got it, nearly took his finger off. He told me that at UFC DC when we were we actually got we were not having dinner together. He was having dinner with Rashad, but he came over to talk. I was at the table with uh, Mike Bond of MMA Junkie. And um, he came up and told us that story, and I was like, dude is hard, bro. That dude is, in the words of Jamie Josta, hard. He is tough. He is tough. Um, yeah, I believe Anthony. I mean, one of the things that's really important about what you – I mean, you, dude, you got to give John Jones and UFC a little bit of credit, man. You really do. And the reason why is because, uh, as I mentioned, with Anthony Smith and then – uh, Tiago Santos and now Dominic Reyes. I take these challenges very seriously. In fact, the last two opponents took John the distance. I think John was very careful with, uh, maybe maybe careful to a point of criticism uh, with Tiago Santos, right? Um, but what he's doing is he's taking fights where he could have been looking for champ champ this and champ champ that and let's give Cormier another run and blah, 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 where he would have gotten a lot more money. He didn't do that. He kept the contendership queue moving at 205 against tough opponents that were, I think, from a box office perspective, unheralded talents, because they're very talented, but they're not necessarily you know, attractions in that particular way. And he gave them all opportunities, and he has stayed relatively active, and he has stayed, for the most part, out of trouble. Uh, and the UFC has made these fights knowing, dude, it's not easy to promote John Jones versus Reyes. I know some folks are bored, but, like, dude, what would you do differently? Okay, I didn't say they did, they did everything perfectly, but, dude, it's not an easy fight to promote. It's not. Same with Thiago Santos. Smith, a little bit different, I think, because he had come off those wins over Shogun and Rashad, and he also had a bit of a supporting cast on those last two. He doesn't have one here. It's a hard fight to promote, man. It's a very hard fight to promote. Um, but my whole point about them being sort of unheralded box office talents is that they've never been on a big stage like that. They never had that much media in their face. They never had to go through those motions. They never had people blowing them up on social media. They never had to just think about a fight and deal with a fight and deal with an opponent in that particular way. Well, John's been doing that shit for 10-plus years. Effortlessly. Effortlessly. Uh, you look at Dominic Reyes, I think there's a lot of reasons to take him seriously. I've said this very, very clearly. I tend to think John um, should be the deserving favorite, and you know he should win this. Um, but I, I take Dominic seriously. On the other hand, dude's never even been in a five-round fight. Now, I know that the Weidman one was, but I'm saying he's never really had to have a gut-check moment in the fourth or fifth round. Man, fucking John's, had, John's been doing that since before Dominic Reyes was even... When did Dominic Reyes make his MMA debut? Hold on. Dominic Reyes made his MMA debut in 2014. That UFC debut, MMA debut. I mean, he's been doing this forever. You know, you just don't know all... You, you, like, of course Anthony was sort of overwhelmed by it because 
all these little contours and all these little paths you have to take and every little tiny detail John knows you could John could do the bird box challenge on those a challenge on those put the blindfold on him he could just walk the path he just knows it like the back of his hand at that point and he's probably going to exploit it in that particular way and maybe he's doing that to uh, to 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 Dominic and the same or some you know sort of undermining the athletic athletic background and you know some of the more questionable things I think Dominic has said yeah dude I absolutely believe that I absolutely believe that so on the one hand wow man you know John really staying active giving these contenders a try on the other hand it's like these dudes you know they're talented fighters but in terms of the totality of the experience and the totality of the preparation they often don't know what they are in for. Um, so we'll see if Dominic does, you know, I, th- I tend to think Dominic will do exactly what, uh, you know, the more charitable view is that he'll, what, one way or the other, when the fight is over, you'll be like, well, you know, Dominic performed ably, um, whether that means what he wins or loses, he'll, you'll, you know, he's going to, he's not going to go in there and collapse either. He, this is a committed guy. That's why the other part of the equation is that's all true. What I just told you on the other hand, you know, just constantly staying out there active and taking on hungry contender after hungry contender, dude, that's hard. It's hard. Eventually, all, all it takes is one mistake. All it takes is one night where you don't feel great or you get unlucky and you injure yourself and the whole shit can come unraveled, you know? Um, John has avoided that a couple of times, both in the Smith fight and in the uh, Sonnen fight, but it's a real it's a real thing, dude. So, you know, that's why that, that's why people are like, oh, this fighter's a joke, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe Dominic goes in there and gets blown out fast. I don't know. But if you just think about the greater context in which John is operating and you got this challenger who, you know, He's got a, sort of this ignorance is bliss kind of attitude. You never know. On the other hand, it's also why John is a very, very tough puzzle to solve. So it's, that to me, that, that tension there is kind of interesting. What are your thoughts on Colby's victim mentality complaint in regards to the ref? I don't take the whole, you know, MAGA mascot thing all that seriously. And if there's any kind of a contradiction there I don't know what to say about that like I don't that's the I don't pay attention to that you can make of it what you will um Faraz Ahabi has assembled a team of killers with GSP Rory Woodley and Kevin Lee I can't help but feel the biggest winner here is the in the long term excuse me is going to be Kevin as he is still young and has time to evolve he now has world-class training partners to work with and a huge wealth of experience and knowledge to draw from with Faraz and GSP. I'm intrigued to see how he is in a year to 18 months' time. I think he could well be a champion by then if he fully embraces Faraz's, Faraz's methods. Do you agree? I do. I think I've always thought Kevin Lee was really talented. He had some fatal flaws uh, that cost him big. You know, cost him in the Leonardo Santos fight. It cost him in the, um, well, both Iaquinta fights. And, of course... I mean, the staff thing, it's hard to know exactly what to make of that with um, Tony Ferguson. Because, you know, were you going to win either way with that? I don't know. But dude has shown you real flashes of skill and brilliance and well-roundedness and athletic ability and a competitor's mindset. He's a tough, tough, very talented guy. And I think what you keyed in on is really important. One, he's young. Two, now he has all of these training resources. And three, dude, Faraz, man... For, I mean, I don't know who my favorite coach is in MMA, but I know that every time I talk to Faraz, I learn something. Every time. Every time I talk to Faraz, and maybe it's not this world mind-blowing lesson. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just a little nugget. 
But it's, it's, it's like every time I walk away, I'm, like, I'm always like, huh, I hadn't thought of that. Every time, dude, every time. And if that's happening, you got to imagine just the wealth of just knowledge circulating in that guy's head. It's unbelievable. So, um, you know, it's, it's actually a bit of a curse, too, because I have to not watch his YouTube videos. So I don't end up, I don't want to ever borrow from him and then steal from him accidentally and then be like, oh, here's an idea I had and, and it's really just his, you know? So I try to just talk to him directly. And if I get it from that, I feel like that's not. I don't know, maybe that doesn't even make sense, but I feel like if I talk to Faraz, that's an organic way to absorb information. I just don't want to look at his videos and then just ape what he says. But I'm sure that they're filled with just oodles of wisdom, too. I have such a high opinion of Faraz. I think he's so smart. I think he's very tactical. I think he understands. I mean, you know, a lot of times you get this Phil Jackson critique where it's like, of course, Phil Jackson won with the Bulls, and of course, Phil Jackson won with the Lakers. Because he had Kobe and Shaq, and then he had Scotty and Michael Jordan. Okay, fine. And yeah, he had GSP. On the other hand, um, I think GSP would be the first to tell you he wouldn't be what he is without Faraz. Faraz's ability to maintain success at again with other students, not 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 at a GSP level. I mean, that's maybe the best ever level. But to have lots of success, when you, whenever you hear him talk in the corner, you're always hearing smart things. He never does an interview and then puts his foot in his mouth. You know, that he just has this ability to be this calming, erudite influence. And, you know, he can get in there and scrap himself. And I think his fighters know that, and they take, they take, they take confidence in that. Um, they, 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 hang on a second. There we go. Sorry. They take solace in that. And I think Kevin Lee, who I think needs a bit of a, not a kick in the pants, but a leadership role in his, his life, it's like Faraz is just the perfect guy for that. So I have, a, I have a lot of nice things to say about Faraz. I've never had a bad interaction with him. Please fucking quit ringing me. Jesus. There is a rumor going around where you can stop there. Well, all right. That Gegard Musasi and Douglas Lima will fight for the vacant middleweight title. I'll believe it when I see it. Um, They'd have to strip Lovato Jr., which they have not commented on yet. It'd be a killer fight. I think Douglas would handle fighting Musasi a little bit better than Rory did. But I'd still favor Musasi to win. So... People keep trying to test Musasi, man. I don't quite understand that. <laughs> Y'all know he's real nice with it. Oh, my God. I'm about to hurt these motherfuckers. Who is texting me? Fucking stop, man. What does your ideal MMA fighter look like currently? You know, I don't have an ideal MMA fighter. What I like, and I've said this before... Well, I guess this I guess this would be ideal, but what I mean to say is um, I like somebody who is a subject matter expert at, a, at a, an extreme level that is good everywhere else. So like you're reasonably well-rounded, but you've got a real ace in the hole. I'm not saying that's the best. I'm just saying to me, those are the guys that are most interesting right now. Right now, I love see, like these Habib types, you know, where they're just, you know, he can he can 
bang on the feet if he needs to. Um, but that's really not a specialty. And he might not even be great at it, but he's okay. Maybe even good in certain circumstances. But on the ground, he's like a next-level genius where all these well-rounded guys don't know what to do. I mean, the game is going to go in cycles, right? Where well-rounded was an answer for specialists. And now what you're seeing is extreme specialists are an answer for, well, for well-roundedness. The question is, can you become extremely well-rounded? Some might be able to, but I think that's going to be quite difficult. But, or maybe it's... Um, or maybe that's not the answer. That maybe that, that that has been the paradigm for a long time. Maybe the next shift is some kind of answer to the extreme specialist. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. We're gonna. I mean, fighting Tony is going to be a big answer. But uh, that's sort of what I'm loving right now. I'm loving the guys that you know. Whatever they need to go, they can, and they're not. It's not some major liability because that's what it used to be. You have these specialists, and they couldn't do anything else. But that's not the case anymore. Um, they can do the other things to the extent that they need to. Uh, you know, again, Khabib never been never been dropped, never been cut. I mean, you, you just have to acknowledge that. Um, but these guys were just extraordinary subject matter experts. Man, I love seeing experts. I love seeing experts. I, there's something about the, it's something about it that just inspires awe much more than being a jack of all trades. And that should, but you know, it's just not not the same for me. Uh, let's see, what belt are you and BJJ? Red. Uh, hey Luke, what are your thoughts on where Dustin Poirier should go from here? Any good matchups? Yes, dude, make the Nate Diaz fight. I know Nate probably doesn't want that fight. He probably is waiting for a Conor McGregor fight, and I think Conor might be wanting that fight since they're gonna give Jorge to Kamaru and um, um, they're gonna give. Oh, okay, so let's assume they're gonna give Kamaru and Jorge the fight to each other. And then let's assume they're going to give, uh, we know this, could be even Tony the fight, and it doesn't fall through. So you've got those two fights on lock. I think he'll then fight Nate. I think that's what they're both kind of waiting for. But you're asking me what I would love to see. They almost made that Poirier versus Diaz fight. I would love to see that fight. I would love to see that fight. I think, uh, you know, poor Poirier has had to go up against two, you know, just great, great fighters and one world beater. And, uh, you know, it's hard to get a good appreciation for what his level is. There's a lot of people that just get shit on because they're not the very best of their generation or even the very best of their weight class. But they're still very, very good. You know, very good. And I have a deep appreciation for those guys because those are the ones that more typically you'll find really maximize their abilities. They push themselves in ways that many of their competitors either don't have to or just can't. And those guys have a hunger that is impossible to describe. I think Kenny Florian was like that for a time. I believe Dustin Poirier to be that as well. And, you know, when you saw that against Max Holloway a little bit, you're like, ooh, he is a little bit better than that. I thought Max was going to win that. Dead wrong. Dead wrong. Um, so I love seeing those guys prove that they're better than what their lazy critics say about them. And I feel like coming off that Habib fight, You've got a lot of lazy criticism of Dustin Poirier, and I think he might show some people what time it is if he ended up fighting Nate. Or maybe Nate would, would prove that wrong and show us that, you know, the fight against Jorge was, was uh, produced lazy criticism, right? But either way, they'd be really, really great things to, 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 to say about it. Uh, what skill do you expect would be Habib's kryptonite? Will we ever see someone with that skill set face him in the UFC? The answer is nobody knows. Right? So one theory is that it would be a submission artist so that you take him down 
they would relent to the positions and then attack from there. Because a lot of times, what do you see his opponents doing on the ground? They're not really attacking. They're just defending constantly, constantly, constantly. right? Because there's, there's uh, Dominic Reyes, right? You take him down. I covered this on Dissected. And what you notice from Dominic Reyes is his first order takedown defense is not great. Guys are able to get body locks with double unders. Guys are able to get a hold of his legs and pick him up and take him down. The problem is that he's very hardcore about getting up again and pretty good at it too. So he has bad first order, good second order takedown defense. Um, but it's that whole idea of I have to get up, I have to get up, I have to get up, I have to get up. Khabib thrives off of that. He's begging you to try to get up because he knows exactly all the pockets to occupy to control you and then hurt you. But what if somebody doesn't give in to that? They're just going to attack constantly. Now part of that attacking that you have to understand is they're still position retainment, is that a word, um, in attacking, right? If you throw up a triangle and someone shucks it by, right, now they're doing a pressure pass to the side, you have to have good guard retention, right? You have to get back into place. So it's not just attacking, attacking, attacking. Part of attacking is the risk you run in losing position. So if you have good positional reclamation skills, in jiu-jitsu, and then you know you have a lot of attacks you can chain together. That's one theory that I think might work against him, but we don't really know. We need to see it. I think another one would be somebody who just goes after him and makes him wrestle defensively. Like we obviously know, Khabib's a really great offensive wrestler. What kind of defensive wrestler is he? Um, some, and I mean, against you know, G- Gillespie was sort of making some noise until he lost to Kevin Lee. But I mean, somebody who has that approach to him, who's just going to get up in his grill and and let's see what time it is. That's another idea. Um, but, you know, no one's perfect. Everyone's got a weakness. He's just a very, very difficult nut to crack. I'm telling you, that's why I love these subject matter specialists. I love it, dude. I think it's so interesting. Is Valentina Shevchenko the best in-cage decision maker in the UFC? No. She is very uh, tactical and smart. But in terms of, like awe-inspiring fight IQ, I would say John Jones is much higher, significantly. Um, she has a real, I don't want to say formulaic or robotic, that's not quite right, but she has what I would call, you know, Jessica, or Jessica um, I was just overmatched, but what you see with uh, Valentina, she's got a very, she's offensive, but there's always a real level of risk assessment in it. That's true with John, too, but John is just much better at identifying and then taking advantage of openings. Now, in his last fight, you might say, well, that's not true. Fair enough. But the totality of his record shows that. Um, Luke, I have repeatedly, excuse me, you have repeatedly stated that when a champion loses his or her title, they should not necessarily hold the number one ranking thereafter. Fucking A, right. Can you explain your reasoning for this case? Happily. To me, it only seems to make sense that after a champion loses their title, they then drop down to the number one rank at least until they sustain another loss. you got to be fucking kidding me. For example, if Khabib loses to Tony, it would not only... Excuse me. For example, if Khabib loses to Tony, it would only be sensible that he would drop to number one. Same goes for Kamaru, Stipe, John, and Israel. Okay, it is not necessarily the case that... Every time a champion loses, they should not go to one. What I am arguing is the opposite, which is what you currently see, which is that in every case, 
what you wind up seeing is that if a champion loses, they end up in number one. Surely there must be some kind of argument to say, in some cases that might be appropriate, in some cases that might not. But you can't make that assessment unless you understand what the purpose is of the rankings. Now, the UFC has not declared it outright, so I guess we are free to assume it's whatever we, the fuck we want it to be. But to the extent that it's modeled off of boxing, and it is because the champion is not ranked, I mean, just ask yourself what that means. If you're actually ranking who's the best in the division, why wouldn't you rank the champion? Oh, because they're the champion. You don't need to? That doesn't make sense. Tell me who the, tell me who the top ten fighters are. Give, tell me who the ten best are. But you're not answering that question. Because that is so subjective, it becomes virtually impossible to find consensus. And even with the method I'm about to describe to you, there's a wide latitude, but it at least is a much more coherent system. What boxing does, and what the UFC has modeled the rankings off of, is to determine a contendership cue. It is why the champion is not ranked, because he can't possibly be. He cannot fight himself, or she cannot fight herself. 1 to 10 is the ranking assessment of who is most deserving next to fight this person. And I understand that, again, there's wide latitude that goes into that. Two, they don't always pay attention to that, maybe even often. Fair enough. You want me to defend the UFC rankings, I will not. But if you are asking me what the purpose is of not ranking the previous champion at number one, it is quite obvious. You are saying to me that after they lose, that is the most deserving candidate for a title shot. Now, as we just indicated, there could be a case for that. I suspect if John Jones loses, he probably would be the number one contender. It's hard to imagine who would be more deserving of a title shot than the greatest light heavyweight of all time. Fair enough. But... Um, it's February. We're coming up on March. Tyron Woodley, who I have enormous amount of respect for, again, I think top three, top four best welterweights ever. And that's one of the, that's one of the marquee divisions, man, that he never got credit in the way he really deserved during his championship title run. And I was singing that tune the whole time. But I'm sorry, he is not the number one contender. It is not in any way defensible to say that that is the most deserving candidate for a title shot next, especially when he last lost in March, a year ago. It doesn't even cohere with the UFC's practices. Colby Covington was given the title shot. You know why? Because he was the number one contender. Why do we even say... I mean, think about what that term means. We throw it around loosely. What does the term number one contender mean? It means you're number one on that list of contenders to take on the champion. Well, connect the dots. You've got the rankings... And you've got this term we all throw out there, number one contender. Dude, that's where it comes from. <laughs> it comes from that list. If the UFC's ignoring it, it's because, well, one, the UFC just takes liberties. But two, it makes no fucking sense to have him there at number one. Maybe it made sense for a month or two, but the division kept moving. Colby kept winning. Colby was the number one contender. Oh, well, Colby hadn't beaten... Tyron, doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you can't get back to one. It doesn't mean that Colby's a better fighter than Tyron. It means he is more deserving of a shot at the belt held by Kamaru Usman. Now who's your number one contender? It is not Tyron Woodley. It is Jorge Masvidal. How do we know that? <laughs> the UFC has said it. They are awarding him the title shot. He is the number one guy on the list. That is what that list determines. 
if the list is just whoever you think is best, what the fuck does that even mean? I think this guy is the best. I think that's the, f- I think that's the seventh best fighter in that division. These are nonsensical terms that, when you actually examine it, don't mean anything. What you're only trying to determine is a meritocratic ranking of who is deserving for a title shot. It is possible that upon losing your title, you could occupy the number one position. That you get there, by definition, in every case, is insane. I should put this motherfucker's number on the air for calling me, but I'm not gonna. Um, in any event, that's, that's the reason. Saying who you think is best is just incoherent trash. It's not a real basis upon which to develop a ranking system. It's not what the UFC did. They borrowed the boxing system. The boxing system is clear. The champion is unranked because you're just trying to determine who gets the next shot. Having a guy lose to Kamaru and then not compete for a year while other people are getting title shots and he's maintaining that position tells you it is all fucked up. He does not deserve to be number one, at least not now. Doesn't make any sense. The division has moved on. Time to recalibrate. And I think that's that should be quite sensical to everybody. We'll do a couple more of these and I'll get to the uh, paid questions to the extent that they exist. What do you think of Daniel Cormier and Ariel, this, this person, writing, towing the company line, so to speak? as they defended Stephen A. Smith for ESPN. I don't think much about it. Um, You could make a guess as to their motivations, which is maybe they actually believe it. I don't know. Maybe they feel like they have to do ESPN a solid. I don't know. Maybe they were told to. I don't know. I can't speak to any of that. And that would be be unfair of me to do that. I I don't know what the answer is there. All I can tell you is, whatever the motivations, it doesn't matter. The task at hand to defend that is to defend, give me a good reason why an unqualified person um, should occupy, and we know he's unqualified, not in some theory, not in some uh, you know nebulous way. We know it by virtue of his performance. Give me an explanation and a good reason for why somebody unqualified should occupy this space. And they can try any bullshit excuse that they want, they can try in their minds to make a really good faith argument. Maybe they actually believe it, but it's not actually possible. And it's why it keeps failing over and over again. Oh, and if we want MMA to be mainstream, it's on ESPN. Joe Rogan's the number one podcaster in the world. It was after a Conor McGregor fight. Mission accomplished. Stephen A. Smith parachuting in doesn't make it more mainstream. And if he really wants to be a part of it, just train up. No one's banning him. Just Get better at it, and get better at it by working your way to a position where you have developed enough competency to make it relevant. That's it. That's it. All we're saying is just be able to do the job competently, no more, no less. And ev- you'll notice every argument offered never is in favor of that. Oh, well, he's allowed to have a difference of opinion. It's not a function of having a difference of opinion. It's about having an opinion worth listening to by, by virtue of erudition. Show me any other show, uh, any other sport on ESPN where... Somebody gets a post-game analysis job on television and never uh, either was a former athlete or spent many years covering that sport. And you could say, oh, Stephen A. does NBA. Right. He spent many years covering that sport. I don't really have much of an issue with that. Uh, 
uh, in, in boxing too. I've said it before. He covers a lot of boxing. I give him credit for it, right? All they're trying to do is it's a very simple thing they're trying to do. They're trying to make an unqualified person get a job they're not qualified for. And it's why all the arguments collapse over and over again. And they've put up a ton, not just them, everybody else who's defended it, has put up a ton of straw man arguments to justify the practice, and it cannot be justified. It's why all the arguments are bad, and it's why really nobody believes it. Right? Even Dana White coming out and being like, eh, not that great. Uh, and then you had uh, John Jones being like, eh, he should probably do his homework. Joe Rogan was right about it then. He's right about it tomorrow. He's right about it now, and he'll be right about it forever, at least in, as it pertains to this particular issue. Um, as for their motivations, you'd have to ask them. As for the arguments, it doesn't matter what they say. It is an impossible task. It is not possible to find a justification to give a job to somebody who cannot do it. And that is what the attempt is. That is why it fails. John Gotti III is now 5-0 and in a respectable promotion. What kind of name... Oh, excuse me. With that kind of name, how long before Danny gives him a call? Dude, I've watched a few of his fights... I don't know exactly if he's UFC ready, but dude, kid looks all right, man. Kid looks all right. I know he's got that name, and a lot of people might be like, really? Can he fight? I mean, seems that way. I might want to see a few more fights, a couple more fights, but dude looks all right. He looks all right, man. I've been very impressed by him so far. So, you know, we will see. We will see. All right, let me see what you paid for, and then we'll come back to it. Um... Stream health looks good. Oh, Jesus. There's a bunch of these. All right. Most defensive striker in MMA. You could maybe make a case for uh, Shevchenko. I know I know. you're like, oh, she knocked out uh, Jessica I, but I was just super overmatched. I mean, Volkanovsky looks like he is defensive, and he is, but he's fighting, you know, a significantly higher level of competition. And by the way, he knocked out Chad Mendez, so... What defensive principles should aspiring MMA strikers implement into their developing game plans? That's a very long question to answer. Um, and how should they train striking in comparison to grappling training? These are questions better suited for Faraz. I'm sorry if that's not. I'm sorry if that's an ineffective uh, and unfair answer. I apologize, but I, in the interest of time and everything else, I, I gotta I gotta move it along. Uh, people bring up John John Jones not answering your question in the past. Oh boy, do they ever! But are they forgetting the time he did a whole interview with you in a British accent? It is actually on my channel now. People have said that's not him. It is 100% him. Let me explain why. This was, um, I was out there covering the fight in uh, Colorado for the, it was the Jones versus Rampage fight. I'll never forget because media day was that day. And you're like, why'd you take the, jo the Jones call if, if there was media day? Because at the time, I didn't know if I was going to get access to him. Um... You know, you just don't know what it's going to be like. So, like, rather than just risk doing a scrum with him later, hey, I'm getting a one-on-one, -on -one, right? Here's how you know. It wasn't a call from a random number being like, hey, this is John Jones. There was a service that what they do is they set up interviews for radio stations. And the service, it's the, you ever seen these guys, they'll sit down, they've got like 200 calls to make it. they got like several hours to make it. And they just go radio station to radio station all day long. It's what they do. That is what they had set up for him. And... I had done another interview that morning with uh, someone else on that card. I forget now. 
Maybe Craig Maynard, was he on that card? I don't remember. But long story short, it was the same number on my phone from that service. I answered it, and it's the operator who patches you through. And they're like, you have a call here, uh, blah, 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 with John Jones, talk UFC, whatever it was, 135, 137, I don't remember. And uh, are you ready? I'm like, I'm ready. Like, okay, John, Luke, here you go. And I was like, hey, John, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. And then he just starts going in a British accent, and I'm like, I'm going to let it rock, just see how this goes. Probably should have hung up at some point, but uh, he did the whole he did the whole interview that way. And then if you look on my channel, right after that, I went to the uh, media day, which was at the Muscle Farm facility. And uh, he actually was like, he didn't really like, apologize, apologize, but he was like, sorry about that, I was just having a little bit of fun. He acknowledges it in the video. There are people being like, it's not him in the comments of the video. <laughs> Bro, it's him. <laughs> it's 100% him. John and I used to have a good relationship, but that has since been blown to smithereens. How can I watch all of your XM interviews on the iPhone? You can watch whatever I post on this channel, and then you can listen on Stitcher, uh, Apple Podcasts, or uh, Pandora, or something like that. Each day, you're going to get about three segments we take from the show. Now, there are 12 segments each day. You're going to get about three of them. So that's how. That's how you're going to get it. All right? There you go. Hey, Luke, I donated last week, and you couldn't see it, but whatever, I'll donate again. Sorry about that. But why do you favor Khabib over Tony? I see Khabib having a problem with Tony's pressure and not shooting on him. Uh, I believe that, to me, well, first of all, I think it's the toughest nails fight. And if Tony beat him, who on earth could be surprised, right? I mean, Tony just, Tony's just a, he's an incredible man. Not just a fighter, he's an incredible man. But I, uh, if Kevin Lee is able to take down and pass in the way that he was, you would have to imagine that um, Khabib could do the same over and over and over again. Now, the difference is that Tony might relent and then just attack underneath. That, to me, is where it gets interesting. But past, if past is prologue, there's reasons to think that Tony won't be able to resist the takedown pressure and then f- various forms of control. But that's... Those are just assumptions. Like, do I know that to be true? Of course not. The future is basically unknowable, y'all. I just tend to think um, the part about Tony that interests me is his ability to cut opposition, right? Slashing elbows, and then his ability to attack underneath. Less so his wrestling prowess. Although it's good. He's got good takedown defense. Remember, uh, Khabib only gets 50% of his takedowns, so he's going to whiff on some. I just think in the end he'll probably get one. Somebody wrote something stupid, which I'm not going to read, even though they paid. Um, should we have refs wear body cams to get a different angle on the fight? PFL does it. I like it. Some people don't seem to like it, but I like it. I, I think it's a great addition. Pride did it, of course, um, in certain spots. So count me in as a fan of it. Do you give no merit to the idea that wrestling is storytelling through scripted athletes and can be engaging? Probably not, but thanks for dunking on me. I'm not going to sit here and talk badly about professional wrestling. All I can tell you is it's not for me. I have tried it a million times. It just... The best way I can explain it is someone puts you on a blind date to a girl that either physically or emotionally or intellectually you're just not attracted to, bro. And it's you're never going to be attracted to them. Doesn't mean it's not attractive to somebody else. It ain't for me. Do you think John is questioning his stand-up against Izzy? Reason being, he keeps saying he would just take him down and break his arm. 
Same thing with Amanda versus Shields. It's like they're already broken. I would be very much not concluding that John Jones is broken <laughs> against Israel Adesanya. If Israel Adesanya is going to beat him, and he very well could, it's because he's just going to straight up beat him. Not because John is broken, just because the uh, one guy was just better than the other one. And of course not, dude. Um, dude, jo- John Jones, like, does he have the same level of stand-up as Israel Adesanya? No. Can he hold his own if he needs to? Yes. And then what would you imagine his ace in the hole to be? Some folks have argued that John's wrestling game has deteriorated recently. There might be something to that. This fight on Saturday will tell us more if that is true. But you would imagine that, again, what we've seen is that the uh, capabilities of John to you know, physically use his wrestling and from far distances too could just be really, really impactful. And he's got a good chin too. Hasn't taken a lot of damage. Folks, forget this, dude. John's takedown defense, 95%. John's striking defense is about 65, 66%. Think about that for a second. Basically, nobody takes him down when he doesn't want to go down. Um, And two out of every three shots thrown at him are either blocked or miss. He's a hard guy to hurt, y'all. Everyone just pays attention to his offense. But look at his defense. He is hard to hurt. He's got a good chin. And he's got lights out takedown defense. Maybe the best we've ever seen. That's a hard guy to figure out, man. It's a very hard guy to figure out. That's why no one's done it yet, not even the great Daniel Cormier. That's a hard dude to figure out. You know, I, I had said in my, um, uh, my post on Dissected that I was like the bull and the matador equation is going to be interesting here. If you, if you watch Dominic Reyes, he's good about maintaining the distance that he wants, but he's not that great necessarily like cage cutting and keeping the opponent in front of him. He lets him wander a little bit. But when people press into him, he's very good about reactive punching and keeping his back off the fence. He's really good about using the fence to get up and then getting off of it. He's got pretty good defensive spatial awareness, less so offensive. So you think to yourself, okay, if John presses into him, that's going to really aid Dominic Reyes. Now we'll see what Dominic does. Does Dominic press him or not? Let's assume, though, that John actually gives into that and actually presses Dominic back, where he is very, very dangerous. Even then, that's what he did, John, to Tiago Santos, who I recognize was injured. But what John did was, at 84 inches of reach and a long leg reach, he just kicked him and kept him away, but was still pressing into him. So you had that bull and matador thing in a way that would favor the game of Reyes, but he could just get pushed at the end of a jab, uh, or at the end of a teep, or at the end of a, a, a oblique kick. And, and what could you really do about it, right? It's a very difficult guy to figure out, man. Very difficult. Uh, someone says, finally visited D.C. and I loved it. All right, let, let's just do this. Let's just do this. I'm going to call this motherfucker back on air. We're going to do this. Ready? You want me to call him back? I'm in the middle of my live chat. You're on the air. Can I call you when I'm done? Thank you. All right, bye. That's my producer. Um, so it says, finally visited D.C. and I loved it. I'm from New York City and I'm looking at D.C. as a place to move to, but Georgetown was very overrated in my opinion. I never go to Georgetown. Georgetown blows. The, I mean, the university's first rate, but the area fucking sucks. It's full of, you know overrated frat dudes and it's just a tourist attraction dude you know where you want to go um 
I like the Atlas District. I like uh, Barracks Row. I like um, Columbia Heights, Tacoma Park, uh, Eckington, Brookland, Edgewood. I like Sh- Shaw's cool as shit. Like, those are the neighborhoods you want to look at. Fuck Georgetown. Can you do a quick breakdown of Jones Adesanya? No, I, d- I cannot do a quick one. What do you think of the schmo? Dude's successful, man. You know, it's not, I mean, those interviews aren't necessarily my cup of tea, but who gives a shit, right? Like, the fighters seem to like him. The fans seem to like him. He gets good information. It's different. It works. It works. You know, so it's not how I would conduct it, but so what? Like, you know, he gets John Jones interviews. I don't, <laughs> right? So, dude, I, I mean, I don't think I'm the target audience for it, but there is one, and it's different, and he's on his way. So, salute. I don't have anything bad to say about him, man. Jesus Christ, it's Jason Bourne. Seen any films lately you could roast? No, I've seen a bunch of good ones recently, actually. Someone says, I'd argue Jordan Peterson's academic work regarding personality, 10 traits of the big five, absolutely are central to his fame, being central to his argument against political correctness and equity, but they were not, that was not what he rose to fame on. What he rose to fame on was him speaking out against political correctness, which is fine. Like that, that, That's how you get discovered. That's how you get discovered. He is not someone who turned in work in his academic field and that work elevated him. Him speaking out against a particular force that he felt was um, dangerous uh, raised his profile, and then that raising of the profile caused people to go back and review his work and perhaps in a more favorable light. And maybe that's unfair in which... To, to his academic work, but it is simply not accurate to say what elevated his profile as a Canadian professor in psychology and, and in various other fields, but primarily that one was uh, a particular paper that he wrote or a particular concept that he derived or a book that he espoused or a research project that he had put forward. None of that is true. It doesn't mean the work he did was not great. There are lots of unheralded academics who do great work. I'm simply, again, it's not to say that it's a reason to dislike him or not to respect him. It's simply to say, in general, um, I tend to gravitate to those academics who, through nothing, no controversy, no nothing, who strictly on the back of their work raise their profile because that work is so paradigm-changing and important, right? That is the one I'm looking for. I want somebody who you've never heard of but they came up with the concept of, as an example, net neutrality. You're like, holy shit, that is a foundational concept to guiding the telecom industry. Like, how did we not think of this before kind of a thing? Um, that is what I'm talking about. That's not the only reason to pursue an academic. But as a rule of thumb, I tend to think that you'll find better work as a consequence. DNC rigging election against Bernie. Thoughts? These fucking, these fucking thieves what a rotten organization the dnc is what a rotten organization the iowa democrats are it is whatever your view of bernie sanders is it not painfully obvious that the institutions in play where you have uh the people who have the 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 the, the ceo behind the shadow app a known Buttigieg supporter 
uh, among other various of conflicts of interest. You have Hillary's people working at uh, uh, the Iowa Democrats doing everything possible to take that away from Bernie. Do you think I trust those 100% election results? Fuck no, I don't. Uh, I don't do that. I don't trust those at all. I don't trust even a little bit of that. This party like the Republicans were in 2016, were terrified of what it might mean for Trump to win. Well, they are terrified of what it might mean for Bernie Sanders to be their nominee and to, God forbid, win. Because what he ultimately ushers in, uh, if it happens, is, um, I don't know about their demise in totality, but he is everything that is a threat to them. And they are going to do, that come hell or high water, they are going to do everything possible to stop him. What they don't realize is, I've never donated to Bernie, ever. Never given him a red cent, nothing. But because of what has happened in Iowa, I'm probably going to donate to him. Because if for no other reasons than fuck those crooks in Iowa and the DNC and Neera Tandon and everybody else associated with them, they are quite obviously doing anything they can to keep Bernie out of power. It is nauseating. And I don't know if he's going to win because, boy, he is up against it. But it has, it has been so obvious that they are utterly untrustworthy, ossified zilches doing everything possible they can to keep this lifelong progressive, whatever you think of his views, from challenging their institutional power. Well, fuck their institutional power. What can Habib expose in Ferguson to give him the W? Fatigue with a bad weight cut. Um... We'll see about his submission defense. I think, to, to me, the big one, this is going to sound silly, I think is the cutting of Habib. Blinding him, disorienting him, scaring him to a degree. You're like, oh, the guy from Dagestan is never going to get scared by seeing his own blood. But he might, dude. He might. Um, it might just be something he's never seen in a fight. Well, it, well, it will be something he's never seen in a fight before. Um, so I kind of, I'm looking to see what happens there. What do you think John will have to accomplish to overcome that failed drug test and behavioral problems? I actually went over this on my show yesterday. What would have to be the case for John to have such a resume that even his greatest skeptics agreed he was the best of all time? Which would mean overlooking the accomplishments of any other champ champ of Silva of GSP and his various indiscretions in and outside of the cage. What would have to happen? My answer is one, I don't fetishize changing weight classes as the ultimate determiner of uh, an arbiter of greatness, but because GSP has one and Cormier has one, just to settle, again, we're talking about settling debate against his skeptics. I think you'd have to get another title and another weight class. Secondly, I think he'd probably, he's at what, if he wins on Saturday, this would be his 26th win, uh, and he's getting tested 42 times annually, which is a bullshit stat, by the way, but neither here nor there. Getting to 30, maybe 35 wins, so like, you know, 10 in this post-USADA, post-USADA era, or not even 10 because you already got the two, but, you know, something like that. If you got 30 wins with no real losses, because Silva's got losses by virtue of stoppage. Silva had four losses before he got to the UFC. GSP's been finished twice. John only has the DQ and the no contest. If you can get 30 wins, 35 wins, and another title, another weight class in that time, I think the debate's over at that point. Someone says, I'm watching your show with Mike. Sweet. What happens if Khabib dominates Ferguson and subs him? Looks like he's going to fight Connor. Uh, Jesus, i got to get through these. Fuck, man. Do you think women's MMA is growing with females, and how do you see it being popular with other women being interested in learning to fight? I don't know about the second part, but it's growing. Uh, well... 
jujitsu is growing with females, so I guess to that extent, there's be, they're becoming combat sports comfortable. Um, but I don't know if there's any information to indicate that like it's growing uh, as a well a little bit right because they see that it's a real path to to making money. So probably, but we still don't have any data on it. Reyes will bring his Mexican fighting spirit and knock out Jones in the first hashtag Modelo. Sure. Someone says, uh, pretend to be Ben Shapiro. Challenge accepted. Bring it on, little Ben Shapiros. I will fuck y'all up. Uh, is ESPN the final destination for promoting the sport and expansion of the UFC? Is there anywhere to go from here? I am looking to see what happens with Fight Pass. I know that sounds crazy, but to the extent that these things keep growing, these over-the-top services grow, and UFC can then just take control of the entire thing, that seems possible. But because ESPN is such a... like, What's ESPN really good at? They're phenomenal storytellers. And let's just call it what it is. ESPN whitewashes UFC problems like nobody else. Nobody covers for UFC problems like ESPN. So between the two, it's just a really important ally to have. Why does John say he has no respect for Izzy because he's been knocked out before? But he has respect for Silva. Because one's a rival and one's a friend and it doesn't make sense. Luke, you tell us about your martial arts backgrounds. Um, and again, same kind of question reworded the old way before. Yeah, but tra I trained for about 10 years, give or take. Uh, I trained a few years in Muay Thai. I was very, very basic at it, not particularly good. But that entire time, I did I, seven or eight, of, um, six or seven of those years in no gi, and then about three or four in the gi, give or take. It's about right. What do you think would happen if top UFC heavy and wrestling intermixed in the in the middle there? What do you think would happen if a UFC top heavyweight, Steep Air DC, fought a strongman, Eddie Hall or the Mountain? They would fuck him up. Strongman's not a fighting skill; it's a it's a strength skill. Does Jared Cannonier have finish in three divisions? Yes, he does. Heavyweight, light heavyweight, middleweight. What's your opinion on Joe Benavidez title fight coming up? I think Joe's going to be your next flyweight champion. And I got to get out of here. Last but not least, likelihood of a title changing hands due to eye poke. <laughs> Low. All right, man. Who are these fucking people? Hold on. Here we go. Jesus. This chat is filled with bots, bro. Good Lord. Terrible. Um, all right. We got to get out of here. As always, like the video, subscribe to the channel, hit that notification bell, tell a friend. I've recorded this. I'll put this up on um, podcast probably today at some point. So there you have it. Thank you guys so much for watching. Oh, one more. One more. One more. Hang on. Khabib versus John Jones if they were the same size. Probably Khabib, I guess. Thoughts on the BMF title? I've already given that. I think the BMF title is a champion weight class question. Uh, okay. There you go. All right. Thank you guys so much for watching. I got to get out of here. Until next time, stay frosty.